Mark chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. Then Jesus went out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, let's kind of set just a little bit of the backdrop, the context. We are for, uh, you know, our understanding of Jesus's ministry at the end of his earthly ministry. If you were to divide his ministry into three sections, you have a period of obscurity, that first year, a period of popularity, that second year, followed by the third and final year, kind of a period of opposition. We find ourselves, as we get into chapter 13, in a a week-long season known as Jesus' week of passion. Um, This week would end uh, on a bit of a a bitter note. It It would hit a low point with Jesus being crucified, But then as you transition from this week to the next, obviously it would culminate in Jesus' resurrection. We are in the midst of this. It began with his triumphal entry. Jesus did some teaching on Monday, went in and cleaned out uh, the temple of money changers. As we get to Tuesday, Jesus is now leaving uh, the temple. He's heading back to his base of operations during this week, a suburb known as Bethany. And so if you're making your way from the Jordan River Valley up through the Judean wilderness, up to Jerusalem, as you get closer to the city itself, the population begins to become more dense. As you get within two miles, you hit Bethany, which is a suburb of Jerusalem. Jesus would stay there Jerusalem has swelled because of the Feast of Passover. It's very difficult to stay in the city itself. So he's going back and forth uh, each morning, each evening, making his way back uh, and forth to Bethany, to Jerusalem, to Bethany. As he's leaving, as he's making his way now uh, back home from the temple, he's going down the Kidron Valley. He's heading east. He's going up the western slope of the Mount of Olives. As they're doing this, the sun is setting. It's a majestic scene. If you Google any image of Jerusalem, most of them, uh, at least the panoramic views of of the city uh, that have the Temple Mount and have the Dome of the Rock and have this just picturesque uh, view of the city itself, all of those pictures come from the Mount of Olives. You have the Mount of Olives, the Kidron Valley, back up into Mount Moriah or, or, or Jerusalem, the temple. And so as they're making this journey, as they're working their way back to Bethany, the disciples are kind of bragging about the temple itself. They're bragging about the, the architecture and how awesome. I mean, the temple had become very much a source of national pride. Keep in mind, the Jews are a subjugated people. This is the first century. They're under Roman rule, Roman dominance. The Jews were very patriotic and thus the temple was symbolic to them. Now, for a little context concerning the temple, because this will play itself out in regards to the sermon itself, we are now in kind of like temple two and a half. The first temple was built in the 10th century by King Solomon. David had had the heart to build the temple But God said because he was a man of war, he had blood on his hands, he wasn't allowed to build the temple. So David, as David would do, got everything ready. Bought the piece of property, cleared the property, got all the the, the tools and the building supplies, the, the blueprints and the plans, the contractors lined up so that when he handed things over to his son Solomon, the building of the temple would be the first thing that would happen. He couldn't do it, but he got it all ready for his son Solomon. The temple was modeled after the tabernacle, which at that point had been the meeting place of God's people with God. It was the place of sacrifice, but as opposed to it being a temporary home, now David wanted to build a permanent one, and so Solomon uh, built the temple. It was an incredible structure beautiful structure, was one of the the ancient wonders of the world. Now, that particular temple was destroyed in the year 586 BC by the Babylonians, and the Temple Mount itself would lay in ruins for a couple generations. 
enter a man by the name of Zerubbabel, who, after the Babylonians had fallen uh, to the Persians, requested permission of the Persian king to go back and rebuild the Jewish temple. And so as uh, this worked, he gained permission. Uh, he had a ragtag group. They came back. They made it a priority to rebuild the temple that had been in ruins and to get the sacrifices going again, to get the, uh, the, the, the activities of the temple reinstituted. But there was something about Zerubbabel's temple that was a bit of a Debbie Downer. Solomon's temple was awesome. It was beautiful. It was ornate. It was gorgeous. Zerubbabel's temple was not so much. As a matter of fact, according to Ezra, the prophet Ezra, people upon the dedication of Zerubbabel's temple actually wept. Anyone who could remember the former glories of the temple, now looking at Zerubbabel's temple, they were moved to tears. Yes, they had their temple, but because it was nothing like it was originally uh, meant to be, there was a bit of, of sadness concerning that second temple. Now enter Herod the Great. Herod the Great was an Edomite, and he so desperately wanted to be accepted by the Jewish people that were under his dominion. And as the story goes, seeking to earn goodwill, seeking to earn good favor, seeking to kind of be one of the guys, so to speak, Herod decided that he was going to restore Zerubbabel's temple to its formal, former glory. Now, it wasn't a complete rebuild. It was a remodel, but it was awesome. The project began in 19 BC, and historically we know it took about 80 years to complete. By the time Herod's temple was finished, it was viewed as one of the greatest structures in the Roman world. And if you know a lot about Rome, they were builders themselves. People traveled from Rome to Jerusalem just to set their eyes on Herod's temple. The temple, Herod made sure to keep the original dimensions, 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 40 cubits high. But while the particulars of the temple itself remained the same, the complex that surrounded the temple, Herod's temple, uh, was really surpassed by nothing else. Yes, the temple was returned to Solomon's glory, but the property itself kind of reached a whole new zenith. The outer courts, we know this from archaeological digs, were approximately 500 yards in length and 400 yards in width. I mean, think about that for a moment. The outer courtyard was five football fields by four football fields. It's huge. The average height of the portico was 165 feet with the pinnacle of this outer court reaching some 23 stories. The engineering of the temple was a marvel. The complex was built using huge quarried limestones that fit together so perfectly they needed no mortar. Recent discoveries uh, recently discovered ashlars of the Herodian temple. Uh, these stones, they weighed the foundation stones in upwards of 160,000 pounds. And they stand at an incredible height of almost 100 feet above the foundation. So these stones, 100 feet above the foundation itself, weighing 160,000 pounds. Like these limestone rocks perfectly etched and cut were so big, measuring 50 feet wide, 25 feet high, 15 feet deep, that modern cranes couldn't lift them. If you go to the temple itself, if you go uh, to Jerusalem, you can actually see these stones. You can stand at one end and you can look. No one knows how exactly they were able to get them into the location, yet alone cut them with such uh, specific dimensions that they fit together perfectly and had no need for quick creep. On top of the limestone was laid a brilliant white marble. Now, obviously, marble didn't come from the area. Herod had it imported from Europe. So you had this white marble on top of the limestone. There were other sections that were completely covered with gold plates, solid gold. 
Josephus, a first century historian writing of this temple, said that it was so brilliant to see, to lay your eyes on in, in the noonday sun, that the reflection, you could see the temple some 15 to 20 miles away. It just radiated. It, it, it shone like the noonday sun. So because the temple been the center of Jewish life for a thousand years, coupled with the fact that Herod had returned it to such glory. You can understand why as they're leaving the temple, making their way through the Kidron Valley up the, the, the Mount of Olives would be bragging about this structure. According to Acts chapter 6, verse 13, to speak against the temple was considered to be blasphemy. Now, in response to their gloating, Jesus kind of reigns on their parade, doesn't he? Here they are, they're making their way. They're bragging about how awesome the temple is, how awesome this structure was, how glorious, please, God must have been. And what does Jesus do? He says it's gonna be destroyed. Look at it again. He answered, he said to them, so he's responding to their bragging by saying, you see these great buildings? I say not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, understand that in regards to Jesus addressing their gloating, discussing the future of Herod's temple, that we can see his words here as being both prophetic and literal. That there is a prophetic aspect to this and a literal aspect. We know, looking back into history, that Indeed, what Jesus said here took place. Once again, first century historian Josephus wrote extensively about the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And we know that his accounts of these events are reliable because he was an eyewitness. Josephus is an interesting guy. A lot of pastors reference him. Very few actually explain who he is or what his proximity to these events happened to be. Josephus was a Galilean Jew came after Jesus. Uh, he was the head of Jewish forces during the first Jewish-Roman war. They battled against a Roman general by the name of Vespasian. They lost. They suffered a defeat. Josephus ultimately surrendered. He relinquished his command in the year 67 AD, and he became a hostage of and interpreter of for Rome, specifically the general Vespasian. In essence, while Josephus uh, and, and his decision to do this is somewhat debated, most see him as a traitor, that he basically realized there's no way we're gonna stand up against Rome. I'm switching sides. I see the writing on the wall. I'm not going down with the ship. He jumped overboard and joined the other team. So he's a hostage slash interpreter slash counselor for Vespasian. Now, Vespasian became emperor in 69 AD. Josephus then becomes the appointed advisor of Vespasian's son, a man by the name of Titus, Titus Vespasian, who was about to embark on another journey towards Jerusalem to deal with another uprising, another rebellion. His plan is to siege Jerusalem. Josephus is going to tag along as an appointed advisor. In 70 AD, Titus began his siege. The months that followed Josephus records that in upwards of 1.1 million Jews would die from the attack, the subsequent famine that would hit the city. Now, according to Josephus, realizing that the fall of Jerusalem uh, was inevitable, if you hadn't already escaped to Masada, which was a plateaued fortress. It's an entirely different, different story in and of itself. If you stayed in the city, realizing that the fall's gonna happen, most of the Jews retreated into the most fortified structure in Jerusalem, which happened to be the temple itself. Now, Titus, he didn't want the temple messed with. He didn't want it destroyed. He wanted it preserved and kept intact. In but because so many of these Jewish revolutionaries retreated into the temple, a, a, a soldier of Vespasian, of Titus, uh, wanting to kind of flush out the Jews who had fortified themselves, uh, threw in 
um, or set ablaze the temple. Now you have the temple, it's limestone. You've got cedar and the inside of it, you know, lining the walls. You've got this gold everywhere. Basically, the temple was set on fire and it was a tinderbox. Now the limestone's not gonna burn, but you've got the cedar that caught on fire and all these drapes and all of this stuff. They said that the, the heat, that the temple kind of became an oven. It got so hot that all of the gold, which was immense, melted and began to flow down into all of the cracks of the temple. And wanting the bounty, what happened? Titus commanded that they take every single stone apart so that they could get to the gold, literally. What Jesus predicted that not one stone would be left upon another took place because of this ill-advised drunken soldier who set the thing on fire. So Jesus, he utters this, this statement in response to this bragging. Imagine you're one of the disciples. You've got pride in the temple and Jesus says it's gonna be destroyed. Utterly destroyed. Now that would raise your eyebrow if you're one of the, of, of the disciples. And so we're told with verse three, that as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, it's quite a hike, sitting down, taking a load off his feet, enjoying the scenery, the view, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked Jesus privately. So they have a question in response to what Jesus has just said. They say, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Now, their reaction to Jesus' prophecy, it's very clear here. The disciples are obviously concerned about what Jesus has just told them that would happen to the temple. Why? Because they believe that what Jesus has just told them is going to happen. There's no doubt. Like, did you notice their question is, when will and what will? They recognize that Jesus uh, is predicting something that will come true. And their reaction produces two responses from Jesus. There's two pressing questions. They accept that the temple will be destroyed, but their two questions are simple. Mark tells us, so we have it here in Mark, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? In response to Jesus saying that the temple would be destroyed, they're literally asking, what will be the sign? Or like the distinguishing singular event that will indicate to us when these things will start, will be, and when will they end or finish? But understand there is a second question that they pose after this one. Now we don't have it recorded in the Gospel of Mark. It's instead recorded in Matthew. Matthew chapter 24, verse three, records a question, a very important question that Mark leaves out. In addition to asking, when will these things be? What will be the sign when they will be fulfilled? They also asked at this point, what will be the sign of your coming and the sign of the end of the age? They're literally asking here, what sign? Once again, a distinguishing singular event can we look for that will not only tell us about the destruction of the temple, but will also tell us, will indicate that you're coming back and that the end of the world is nigh. Now it's this question that Jesus, as he's sitting there on the Mount of Olives, it sparks this sermon. Jesus is going to answer their question. And we know that this sermon is the Olivet Discourse or the discourse Jesus gives on the Mount of Olives. This is where we get the name. So Jesus, in response to their intrigue in regards to the destruction of the temple, recognizing that something will bring that about, connecting it to his coming and the end of the age, Jesus is going to give this sermon. If you're a note taker, Note that the sermon is also recorded, aside from Mark 13, 
and Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and Luke chapter 21. It's recorded in three of the four Gospels. Admittedly, the Olivet Discourse is one of the most complex and debated sermons in all of Scripture. Very few people debate the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you're not having sides separate and take hardcore positions, you know, on the Beatitudes. Like, it's hard to get contentious over the Beatitudes. But when you're talking about prophetic events, when you're talking about the end times, when you're talking about this sermon, camps quickly emerge, tempers flare, and people get heated. Now, with this in mind, before we actually get to the sermon, I want to explain there are two basic ways of interpreting the Olivet Discourse based upon two, and I'm going to use a big word, eschatological viewpoints. Let me define eschatological. Eschatology is the branch of theology, and theology is the study of God, that's concerned with final events of mankind. And it's not just Christians that like to talk about the end times. Every world religion has some eschatological viewpoint of how everything is going to come to an end. Armageddon, the end. Everyone does. And not only Christians or those who are religious, but have you noticed that even pop culture has kind of a fascination with the end? How is everything going to come to an end? And I think that there's an aspect of like our own mortality that lends us to this, this thought of, of this inevitable end of everything. How will it all come crashing down? Now, there are two eschatological viewpoints in regards to Christianity concerning this sermon that are important for us to understand uh, in order for us to, to maybe uh, avoid certain points of contention, but at least to lay out uh, in a fair way um, what our position will be concerning this particular sermon. And understand, there are all kinds of viewpoints within these two broad categories. Um, when it comes to the end times, uh, if you can invent um, a position, that, that position already exists somewhere at some time. People have all kinds of debates in regards to the timing and, and the nuances. We're just going to divide this into two broad sections first. There is what's known as preterism. Now, preterism is the eschatological position that interprets most biblical prophecy, and specifically the Olivet Discourse, as already being fulfilled. That what Jesus is discussing in this sermon has already found a fulfillment. It's already taken place. Now, within preterism, there are hyper-preterists, partial preterists. I'm just kind of addressing this with a broad stroke. Preterists will divide over whether the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Jesus, is literal or just spiritual. A literal kingdom or a spiritual kingdom. So they'll divide over that but they all will rally around two ideas. One, a second coming of Jesus. And two, that there's no rapture of the church. All preterists will agree with that. Preterists teach that Daniel's prophecies were fulfilled in the second century BC and that the events described in the book of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse were fulfilled in the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Eusebius of Caesarea was the first to introduce the idea of preterism. He did so in the third century AD because this position that everything being discussed concerning the end times has already been fulfilled kind of helped address a big problem the church was facing. So you have what might initially be seen as end times futuristic prophecy that deals with the nation of Israel and the temple. But in the third century, what do you not have? You don't have a temple and the Jews have been destroyed and dispersed throughout the world. There's no nation of Israel and there's not a temple. Preterists 
often hold to what's known as replacement theology or covenant theology, which holds to the idea that God's covenants and his promises for the nation of Israel have been transferred to the Christian church, that God is not working through his people, the Jews, but rather his people, the church itself. Eusebius presented this entire doctrine to explain why the nation of Israel is no longer important, why the temple's not important. He transferred all the promises to the church itself. These events have already come. They've already gone. The destruction of Israel is explained. Now, preterism is still the eschatological viewpoint of many reformed theologians. So if anyone says, I'm a reformed theologian or we're part of a reformed church movement, they're often uh, preterists. Um, And yet, what's interesting about this is that while preterism was the position of the church for centuries, almost universally, something happened in May of 1948 that got Protestants thinking a different direction. So you have this entire eschatological view that uh, developed because it explained why Israel is no longer important, why the temple is no longer important. But then what happens? In May 1948, the nation of Israel reemerges. It comes back to the forefront, which got people kind of like, wait a second. All these things that we've kind of said maybe had previously found fulfillment could now have a future fulfillment because the nation of Israel is back. And it was an amazing kind of groundbreaking uh, event that got a lot of Protestants rethinking the entire aspect concerning end times event. Now, there is a relevant question that preterists do pose concerning this sermon, the Olivet Discourse. And that is this. If Jesus prophetically responds to the disciples' question concerning the future destruction of the temple, then isn't it only logical to assume the prophecy contained in his sermon would also find fulfillment in the destruction of the temple, that being 70 AD? And that's a fair question. So what started the whole thing? Jesus said the temple would be destroyed. That spawned their questions. So it has a literal fulfillment in 7080. So why doesn't the rest of the sermon also find its fulfillment in the same event? And that's a fair question. But I do think that there are two problems with the assertion itself overlooked by those who hold the position. As we'll see in the text, the sermon, it's impossible to draw a hard connection between the prophetic events Jesus describes and the Olivet Discourse and the known historical events that occurred in 70 AD. Yes, the temple was destroyed, that's true, but it's very hard to lay out the rest of Jesus's prophecy within those events. Sure, not one stone was left upon another, but shouldn't the rest of his prophecy also be fulfilled in the same literal way? If that's the, 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 the position you take, I'll give you an example from the sermon, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but it's impossible to fit Jesus's description of an event known as the abomination of desolation and great tribulation that followed from the eyewitness accounts laid out by Josephus. It didn't happen in 70 AD. There's a lot of theories that try to, but it's, it's, it's not fulfilled. And so one of my problems with the preterist perspective is that if you're gonna say, The temple was destroyed, that happened literally in 70 AD. Thus, the rest of the prophecy should have the same literal fulfillment in that year. Then it would have a fulfillment and it should be as easy to see as the destruction of the temple itself. Secondly, preterists also make the false assumption that Jesus's answer laid out in the Olivet Discourse intended to address both of the disciples' questions. Remember, There was two questions posed, right? When will these things be? Context, destruction of the temple. The other question, what about your coming and the end of the age? Like it's clear that the two questions asked by the disciples indicated they made a connection of three events, the destruction of the temple, Jesus' second coming, and the end of the age. And yet that might've been a misconception on their part. Jesus, while addressing already the destruction of the temple, 
might seem to focus instead on the second half of the question. Now, yes, it was spawned by a desire to know more of the, the destruction of the temple, but it would seem by context that the sermon doesn't deal with the destruction of the temple at all, but he uses his entire time to deal with the more pressing issue, that being his coming and the end of the age. So you have this preterist perspective. We'll address it a little bit more as we work our way through the sermon itself. But there's a second viewpoint. It's more of my viewpoint. And that is a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial uh, perspective of these events. Basically, this is the theological, the eschatological position that holds to a literal, historical, futurist fulfillment of not just biblical prophecy, but specifically a good portion of the book of Revelation and also the Olivet Discourse. I, I don't see the Olivet Discourse finding its fulfillment in the events of 70 AD. This particular camp believes in a future fulfillment of three significant events. First, the rapture of the church. We believe in what's known as the church age where there is a reprieve prophetically in God's handlings of Israel as laid out in Daniel chapter nine, that there is a time of the Gentiles, this church, that will at some point come to completion. And when it does, the church will be removed from the earth and God's focus will revert back onto the nation of Israel. So this position believes in the rapture of the church, also believes in a seven year period of worldwide tribulation in which Jesus will judge the world of sin and finish his dealings with the nation of Israel. Also, the precedents found in Daniel chapter nine. And finally, that Jesus will return to the earth and his second coming to establish a literal kingdom where he'll rule and reign for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20. Premillennialists, and I know this is a lot of big words and heady stuff, but it's important for our understanding of the sermon we view the prophecies of Daniel, the book of Revelation, and the Olivet Discourse as having a futuristic description of a literal period of great tribulation that culminates in Jesus' second coming and his millennial reign. Now, there are those who accuse this position of kind of being a new wave in regards to church history that the church has always had this preteristic viewpoint and that it's only been uh, for the last hundred years or so that the church has adopted such a perspective, that, that in essence, during the dispensationalism of the late 1800s, that this has entered into the forefront of Christianity. And they'll throw around, you know, if it's new, it's not true. And this whole thing is new and you guys are extremists, blah, 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 blah. But the problem is, is historically, it seems that this position of end times events predates that of the preterist. Keep in mind, we know that preterism entered the forefront of the church in the third century. And yet we have writings, church leaders, documents dating before then that seem to validate the idea of the rapture of the church, of a literalist understanding of the second coming of Jesus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You have Clement who wrote 96 AD. You have a document known as the Diodaci, written somewhere between 70 and 100 AD. Tertullian writes of it, 155, somewhere to, to 245 AD. My point being is that you also have a historical precedent that this position is not actually true, but goes back to a more fundamental, literal understanding, more in line with early church fathers. Now, there is a relevant question this position also must address. If the Olivet Discourse finds its fulfillment in a future end times scenario, shouldn't we then believe that the church will go through all or at least half of the Great Tribulation? And that's a very logical position. Think of it like this. Okay, if we see the sermon as Jesus explaining his second coming, the end of the age, end times events, and since Jesus exhorts uh, the disciples to endure 
these times. He uses personal pronouns. Can't we then conclude his exhortation in the Olivet Discourse was for the church as well as Israel? And I think that that's logical, but I disagree with the assertion for three reasons. First, the context for the disciples' question represented a concern about what? The church? No. The church doesn't even exist as a concept at this point. They have no idea. They're talking about the temple. They're filled with a national pride. They're Jews. Like their question represented a concern for the future of Israel and their temple, not the church. Secondly, their assertion doesn't take into account other biblical passages that indicate the rapture will come before the tribulational period. Now, if you're just going off the Olivet Discourse, you might be inclined to kind of follow suit with that perspective. That, okay, I'm taking this as as something that will, will still happen. Jesus is talking to, I mean, the pillars of the church. Maybe the church will go through this based on the context of Jesus Uh, not specifically laying out some rapture scenario, and yet that discounts a lot of other passages in Scripture. In regards to our understanding of the Bible, in regards to the rapture of the church, please understand something. There's not one neat, tidy passage or chapter that just kind of lays it all out in bullet points. Like, I wish that there were. That would be convenient, but it's not. It's not as though you're going to turn to the book of Isaiah or First Hesitations and find chapter 3, everything you need to know about the rapture, unpacked and tidy. I would love it. It doesn't exist. And yet, the concept of the rapture finds itself weaved uh, throughout the entire New Testament. As a matter of fact, what's fascinating is that the rapture of the church is a doctrine addressed and discussed more in the New Testament than almost any other doctrine. It's a central concept. And if you look through the rapture, through scripture, you're gonna reach some conclusions that I think necessitate the rapture happening before any of the events of the Olivet Discourse will take place. I am a pre-tribulational rapture, uh, that's my perspective, that the church will be removed before the events of the Olivet Discourse will take place, that Jesus is writing not to the church, but to the nation of Israel. And I'll just kind of lay out, we're not going to go through them in depth, but just some things you can jot down, I think scripture presents that substantiates this position. First, there is what's known as the, the precedent of judgment. And that's that the Bible clearly explains, it establishes a precedent that before God ever punishes or judges the wicked, he first removes the righteous. Uh, Just two quick examples. Noah and his family and the flood. You, You also have Sodom and Gomorrah, the debate between Abraham, and God, well, if there's any righteous, you know, and they start negotiating terms. What about like one or two? And God's, I won't judge. Like there's this precedent we find where there's an, like when we're talking about a divine judgment of God, initiated by God for a purpose of God, that he doesn't judge the righteous with the wicked. First Thessalonians 5 verse 9. For God did not appoint us, speaking of the redeemed, to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul writes, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, who delivers us from what? From the wrath to come, a future wrath. The second thing that I think substantiates a pre-tribulational view of the rapture is, is the basic question of what's restricting the revealing of the Antichrist. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, Paul says something very interesting. He says, now you know what is restraining, that he, speaking of the son of perdition, the Antichrist, may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, and notice it's a capital he, who now restrains, restrains what? 
the, the coming, the revealing of the Antichrist will do so until he, note capital he, is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The he that's restricting the arrival of the Antichrist, even though there is this work of lawlessness already afoot, is the Holy Spirit. And in my position at work through the church. So what's restricting the Antichrist's arrival is the existence of the church and the presence of the Holy Spirit at work through us. Thus, when our job is completed, we'll be removed. What's restricting the Antichrist is no longer in place. Thus, boom, some things can start working prophetically. Thirdly, in regards to the rapture, there seems to be always associated with it this theology of comfort. Like everywhere you find the rapture mentioned, brought up, it's always placed as an encouragement of Christians and the church. As we saw it even in our study through the, the, the seven letters in Revelation chapter three, verse 10, Jesus says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will do what? I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That'd be very hard to fulfill uh, if the church wasn't raptured before these things happened. First Thessalonians 4, 16 and 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, literally raptured up, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall be always be with the Lord. Therefore, what? Comfort one another with these words. If the church had to endure any of the tribulation, how in the world could a doctrine based on encouragement and comfort actually be comforting? Also, you should know in regards to a pre-tribulational view of the rapture, there is associated with it the idea of imminency. That's basically that the rapture, there's nothing connected to the rapture that has to happen for the rapture to happen. That it can happen at any day, at any time, at any moment. Though I think the event itself will happen very close to the events of the great tribulation, there's really nothing from it happening today. That it's imminent, any time, any moment, Christ can call his church. And thus, with that concept, the rapture is always presented as an exhortation to believers to what? To be ready, to be vigilant, to be active. Why? Because he can come today. As we'll see in our examination of this tribulational period with Daniel chapter nine in tow, because we have a seven-year timeline with very significant signifying events marking the beginning of these seven years, the halfway point, and the end of the tribulation, it would be impossible for the rapture to happen at the midpoint or the end and still remain imminent because we would know based upon the prophetic timeline when these things would happen. Finally, there's the environment associated with the rapture that seems to indicate it should happen before tribulation. The Bible presents a condition of the earth leading up to tribulation much different from the tribulation itself. Like what's the environment when Jesus calls the church? According to scripture, there will be peace on earth. There'll be calm. Life will be good and normal. Jesus will come as a thief in the night. Nothing will be happen happening that has us ready, which is why I never thought like Y2K made much sense, right? It's like if, if everything goes, like we would know something's happening and yet we won't. And tribulation, there's a world in chaos, judgment, calamity, not the environment for the rapture. Getting back to how we address the Olivet Discourse from this perspective, I also want to note, and, and we'll dig into this, that the Olivet Discourse almost tracks succinctly and perfectly with a chronology laid out by Jesus, again in the book of Revelation, beginning in chapter six. It's an interesting thing, and we'll do this as we work through the sermon, but as Jesus is laying out events as they'll occur, they perfectly follow a series of judgments we know as the seal judgments. Now that's significant 
Because in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus gives John the outline for what he was about to write. Jesus tells him to write the things which you have seen. And, and thus we know that would be chapter 1 and, and John's experiences that led him to the island of Patmos and then the revelation there of Jesus, chapter 1. Then he's told to write the things which are, chapters 2 and 3. We've spent seven weeks looking at these seven letters that Jesus wrote to the church. And in our approach to these letters, we establish the fact that in writing to seven, Jesus was writing to the church itself. Each letter representing different periods of time culminating in the church itself. Thus, we have four of them that it would seem go all the way up to the point of tribulation. But then Jesus says, write the things that will take place after this. Now, when you get to chapter four, after these seven letters to the church, there is a marked transition. After these things, it's the same Greek word usage laid out in the outline of, of chapter one, verse 19, seeming to indicate after what things? After this period of time known as the age of the church. Revelation 4 and 5 describes the church in heaven. From my perspective, the events that follow uh, that deal with what's happening on earth. Basically, from chapter 4 on, you should note that the church is never mentioned being on earth from that point forward. The church is in heaven, and it's simply Israel and the Jews that are, are referenced. Now, in conclusion to part one. We laid all this out to kind of set the stage for an understanding of a very complex sermon. I feel like I should at least address this. Why do I care? Like, why should you care? Why should any of us care? It's like, Zach, I came to church this morning trying to get help for like today. Or like at least this week. And you want to take four weeks to talk about the end? I got a long way to go, brother, before I'm going to get to the end. I'm almost at my end. Why? Like, and there's a move within the church to diminish these things. Not in the sense that they're not important, but they're, they're just not relevant to a practical application for my life today. And yet, I couldn't disagree with that sentiment more. To me, knowing the end places today in so much better context. I, I'm not the smartest kid at school. I, I, was, I was never really the sharpest tool in the shed, so to speak. Yes, I might be a few fries short of a Happy Meal, but When you have a problem, say a math problem, and you're really struggling to do your homework, the answers are in the back. Like it took me two years of high school to figure that out. Like that half of the have answers. And why is that the way that it is? It's because when I'm dealing with a problem I can't make sense of, if I can go to the end and get the answer and plug it back into the equation, I can make sense of things. Like understanding the end, understanding where all of this is going should give you context to the problems you face today and that our world is facing today. Like, I am, I am not interested. Like, I, I have no interest in saving America. That was my George Bush, you know. <laughs> saving America. We got to save this country. I don't care about saving America. I appreciate America. I'm, I'm more interested in saving Americans. Because I know where America is going to end up where it all ends up. Like, I, I know the end of the story. Which makes whatever I'm dealing with today, whatever I got, like, it brings clarity and it brings purpose. 
Like, why should we study these things? Friend, for two reasons. Jesus could come back at any moment, and your understanding of that should make today matter. It should give you some context for today. Now, I'll be honest. I will be spending most of my day watching football. And if Jesus comes back, I have no problems for all of eternity being like, I was watching football, but at least I preached a sermon. At least I did something productive in my day. My point is, yeah, we can have fun, but, but there should also be a seriousness to the moment. You, you might know someone that doesn't know Jesus. My guess is you do. And you know what potentially awaits them. Having a greater understanding of that should do something to your heart. And we can get into, well, when does the rapture happen one way or the other? The truth of the matter is that Jesus is coming. We all hold that position. I happen to believe that he's coming. And before then we go to him. And I think it happens at the beginning, not the mid or the end, but at some point we do as a basic idea of theology, believe Jesus is coming back here. And you know what he's coming to do? To judge. He's coming to judge. I want to be found faithful. And I think having a helpful, healthy understanding of the end enables me to be more effective, more passionate, more compassionate. That's why we're going to take the time to look at this sermon.